1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton, and I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, which is the orbit of my own PhD. Today, we'll be talking to Christoph Heilig about his new book on the Apostle Paul, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, uh, Christoph earned his PhD from the University of Zurich in 2018 and is currently a postdoc at the University of Basel, both in Switzerland. Uh, This fall, he will uh, lead an international junior research group at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, which will focus on narrative perspectives in early Christian stories. His own work on narratology in the letters of Paul has received the Manfred Lautenschläger Award for Theological Promise in 2022. Christoph's various research interests include the role of probability theory in biblical interpretation, the digital humanities, the potential of large language models like chat GPT for biblical exegesis, and much more. He has previously published two monographs dealing with the issue of empire in Paul's letters, which is the subject of our conversation today. And those previous books are called uh, hidden transcripts with a question at the end of it, a question mark that is, and Paul's triumph. Uh, Christoph and his wife Teresa, uh, they have two young children, which he says means that he no longer has any hobbies, and I certainly know how that feels myself as well. Uh, But he also tells me that he enjoys a good wine, especially Greek wine with his friends, and that's a great way to spend an evening. On top of all this, Christoph is joining us today from his home in Germany to discuss the publication of his most recent book, which is called The Apostle and the Empire, and the subtitle is Paul's Implicit and Explicit Criticism of Rome, and it was published with uh, William B. Erdman's publishing company in Michigan in the United States. That's Erdman's, E-E-R-D-M-A-N-S. Christoph, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network.
0: Well, Rob, thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for this very kind introduction. And I just hope that we can have that bottle of wine uh, at another date when we meet in person one day. But I really appreciate the, this technology that uh, the pandemic has really brought with us being able to talk to each other um, from Europe to America about developments in biblical studies, for example. So I'm really grateful for that and I'm grateful for your initiative of inviting me.
1: I can't say that I've had a good bottle of Greek wine, so I know that you'll pick out a winner for us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, uh, let's uh, introduce the subject by talking about Paul briefly for a little bit, uh, because many of our listeners uh, will have a pretty basic understanding of who Paul is. Uh, you know, the famous Apostle to the Gentiles in the New Testament without knowing about the very active research and publication that's going on within the last two decades or so uh, about his perspective with respect to Judaism, uh, apocalyptic eschatology, and his relationship to empire, and so on. So, uh, for example, uh, many scholars uh, will attribute only certain New Testament letters to Paul, and therefore they'll restrict the sources, the authentic sources of his life, somewhat below the 13 letters that bear his name, and many will also look approach the book of Acts with uh, selectivity. So I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the portrait of Paul that you uh, broadly accept and the process that you follow when evaluating him from a scholarly perspective? And uh, furthermore, what motivates you to per- uh, pursue this kind of study into uh, Paul?
0: Sure, sure. Well, thanks a lot for that for that question. Um, yeah, so Paul has been the subject of a lot of debate, as you indicated over the last couple of decades. And most of that has to do with a re-evaluation of Judaism at that time, um, and with the recognition that it's not fair to these people to um, speak of their religion and their beliefs as a kind of work righteousness uh, analogous to the to the uh, theology that Martin Luther was um, was attacking at his time. So that has this. General recognition has um, caused a lot of rethinking about Paul and about the kind of battles that he really fought, including this idea that perhaps he was not so much in conflict with uh, the law of the Jews, the Torah, but rather with, for example, the, the Roman law, right? Um, and so th- this is one of the, the ways in which this recognition that uh, Judaism was different at that time uh, from what we had believed prior to, uh, especially the research by E.P. Sanders. Um, has caused rethinking of these various fronts um, of the lived reality of Paul, including this, this Roman dimension. Um, but, but there have also been many debates um, concerning these more basic historical issues that did you, you also touched upon the, the question of the authenticity of his letters. And with respect to all that, I'm actually I, I don't fit into a good box because I, uh, as a student, I, I, I studied at a, at a quite conservative seminary in Germany. So I was quite skeptical about the academic theology or liberal theology, or however you want to call it, um, and then I was quite dissatisfied with what I learned at, at school. And this is why I then went on to study and later work uh, at the university level. Um, so unlike some of, of perhaps the more conservative or evangelical listeners to your podcast, I don't have a problem in general with the idea that some of the letters that um, uh, claim to be written by Paul might perhaps not be written by himself. And similarly, I, I don't think there's a problem um, with the idea that the book of Acts is also a literary work in which Luke portrays certain, certain historical events through a very specific theological lens. Um, well, yet at the same time, um I also recognize that many of the ideas that we entertain at the universities in general if you want to make this dichotomy um, also rest also rest on scholarly traditions and are not actually rooted in evidence. so I yeah I, I'm, perhaps I would say I go even further than calling into question the authenticity of some ledgers. I might even call into question whether we can even get back to the historical poll when it comes to the uncontested letters because we, we have this issue of co-authorship and we know that he has used probably different secretaries at, at different points in times so who might have employed very different techniques in writing down his words and so so as i've been traveling between these different contexts i've been i've come to the position that we need to remain agnostic about some things and i'm open to what both of both sides to some uh, to some extent which is sometimes com- confusing to both sides then but especially when we are talking about about the roman context I-, I do think that we get a rather concrete image of the historical paul through the letters that we analyze um, and I think it's quite interesting because, as I said, I, I often am not sure whether we are getting Paul's own words or whether it's words that were written down by secretary or words that were written down later in uh, in memory of him. So I think actually that this whole nexus of empire might be a really good issue in shedding more light on what we can learn about the historical Paul, because if because if we find very specific historical details in these ledgers, if perhaps um, put the other way around, if very specific historical details and circumstances ex- explain the Pauline text very well, then this might help us in dating certain ledges and um, being more specific about our historical judgments.
1: That's wonderful. Thanks for uh, sharing a bit of your background and how you got into um, uh, studying Paul uh, in this way. It is interesting when we uh, read his letters, uh, you know, it's famously said that we're, we're reading one side of, uh, you know, conversation. We're opening someone's mail and, and trying to uh, understand the context that uh, birthed uh, this sending of, of a letter. And that it does feel at times when we read Paul's letters that we're kind of chasing after shadows. Um, this is not your first book, as we said, on Paul and Empire. So before we get into uh, your specific arguments in The Apostle and the Empire, we should uh, um, cover a little bit of the background that you have been through uh, in writing two books before this. So um, as, uh, thinking specifically about your book, Hidden Criticism, your first book that was published by uh, Morse in uh, 2015 and uh, subsequently uh, published in the United States by Fortress Press, uh, assume that Neither I nor your audience has read your first book, Hidden Criticism. What were your main arguments in this uh, first uh, monograph of yours? And what what did you hope to convey with uh, that entry into the scholarship? Yeah, so originally
0: the idea for that book emerged actually already during my undergraduate degree in theology. Um, Because I was at this rather conservative seminary and because of the kind of theology that we were taught there, um, I was quite thirsty for fresh perspectives from people who somehow understood perhaps my own more conservative theological background, but also opened up new doors uh, for, of thinking. And so I, I read a lot of anti Wright at that time. And it, it, the, the, this idea of the way he redefined the Pauline Gospel was very attractive to me. Because I, I was unsatisfied with this definition of the gospel as you have to be really, you really have to take care that you believe and you 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 don't you, you must not do any good works in order to and you must not rely on anything you do. And just if, if, if you manage that, then then you you are justified by faith and everything is good, and, and that's the whole gospel. And I, I was never really satisfied with that. And. Um, against that backdrop, this idea that the gospel consists in the proclamation of Jesus as Lord was really attractive because it meant that the gospel is is uh, could be explicated in a way that is understandable today too and that confronts all kinds of evil power. So also, for example, evil political systems in our day. And the idea that when this logic of Jesus is is proclaimed, then comes with the forgiveness of sins and and with repentance and all these things and justification. Uh, that somehow was much more sympathetic to me and it just, I think, emotional level. And so I, I began studying these questions and then for my bachelor's thesis, I focused on two methodological pillars of this whole approach of an supposedly anti-imperial poor. Because there, there has been research, uh, had been research by Andy Wright and Neil Elliott and some others who, who at that time had claimed that uh, this whole idea that Paul only uh, asks us to submit to the government in Romans 13, but besides that never has anything critical to say about the Roman Empire, is just wrong. And they argue that Paul actually is quite critical of the Roman Empire, but that he critiques the Roman Empire only in the subtext of his letters, because it would have been too dangerous to publicly critique. The Roman Emperor and his ideology, and so this whole approach rests on two methodological pillars. The first is um, a concept by the sociologist James Scott. It's a differentiation between hidden and public transcript. And James Scott um, criticized historiographers and said, "Well, you 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 write these books about the slaves and about they supposedly um, they supposedly being." okay with that treatment, but you only look at the public transcript, that is, at what the elites allowed them to say and wrote down themselves. And the, the hidden transcript, the things that the slaves told um, among themselves, that's largely lost to us. And so this idea was picked up by Neil Elliott, and he said, well, it's, it's similar with Paul. We only get the, the kind of transcript, the kind of rules, the, the discourse as it is filtered through the rules of the Roman Elites, but we at some places get a can get a view of uh, the ideas that Paul has about the Roman Empire that are actually critical. And so I looked at that during my bachelor's thesis and I also analyzed this use um, of criteria that Richard B. Hayes had suggested for identifying very subtle echoes of scripture in the letters of Paul. And both Neil Elliott and Anti Wright made use of um of 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 this set of criteria in order to to justify their search for subtle allusions to roman ideology so not looking for echoes of scripture but for echoes of rome and so that that was my bachelor's thesis looking at these two theoretical and methodological concepts in the background Um, and then i got to St. Andrews for my master's degree and I had a lot of time then, a great library and good friends and wonderful teachers and just the opportunity to immerse myself into this, this topic. And I interacted closely with an article that John Barclay had written, um, Write Your Roman Empire was Insignificant to Paul, it's, it's a fabulous article, uh, originally it was a, a, a contribution to a debate he had with anti Wright at an SPL meeting, you, you can listen to it on, on the internet, it's quite fascinating. And many people who were there at the event actually said, well, that's the, that's the end of the entire imperial um, interpretation of Paul, right? That's uh, ju- just su- such a convincing case. And I do think it's a really great article. So if you can check it out and read it. So that was my main dialogue partner during that time. And uh, as, as that year completed, both Barclay offered me wonderful feedback on my work, which was really, uh, for me as a student, really encouraging and um, yeah, encouraged me to pursue the. Path in, in academia. And also, your cry from uh, editor of the series in Wundt 2 uh, from Mozibek suggested me submitting my, article, my, my book for review. And so that's basically how I kind of stumbled into this debate as, as a student. And um, of course, there are many things in this book that I could not yet take into account at that point in time, which is also why I now felt I had to add some. New, new information, some context, and, uh, but but still I think it, it it was great that these senior scholars trusted me and gave me the opportunity to um, enter this conversation, they were no, not gatekeepers but really encouraging me and I do think that this book did make a contribution and did, in that it drew attention to um, the critique that Barclay made and the different things that we have to take into account if you want to evaluate whether or not Uh, this idea of a critical subtext of Rome in Paul's letters is plausible or not. Um, And I do think it's important to take these considerations into account if we just don't just want to exchange our opinions all the time, but want to make progress uh, in our research on this question.
1: It it is quite remarkable that you did publish that book before your PhD was completed, actually, and that uh, John Barclay um, um, uh, saw your potential and uh, assisted you in that way. Can you repeat the name of the article for uh, people who are interested?
0: Uh, that's why the Roman Empire was insignificant to Paul and I do think that the uh, that the presentation has the same name so you, you should be able to also find the, the the older presentation it was published later in a collected volume of essays uh, in, in a book by Mosiewicz on Mediterranean churches Pauline churches I think that's the title something like that and the same book was then later also published uh, as a paperback edition by Erdmans. So the that, the that, that that the whole collected uh, the whole collection of essays is really uh, worth purchasing. So if you have a chance, um, you can get this great high quality collection of articles now in a really uh, for, for an affordable affordable price as a paperback at US.
1: And for people who pick up your book, it's uh, this whole debate is referenced in the footnotes of I think your first chapter or maybe your introduction, but it's all right there. So um, uh, the easier way to go about it is to get Christoph's book, yeah, and, sure, uh, right, and then, sure, and then you can find that. your way oh, no. to <laughs> <Right, laughs> then right. you can find your way to John Barkley's uh, previous contributions and uh, his debate with N. T. Wright and so on and so forth. But let's uh, turn to uh, the book now, uh, Christoph, because uh, in that first chapter of yours, you spend some time discussing uh, sets of criteria, uh, particularly from John Barclay. Uh, for determining whether Paul aired any critiques, whether open or concealed of the Roman Empire, its emperor's policies, religious movements that are you know, uh, going on in, in his day and age, etc. cetera. Uh, you also make the claim that there was never a time in the early church when belonging to uh, the movement later known as Christianity was not dangerous, uh, uh, with a specific appeal to the situation that would later be recorded by uh, Pliny the Younger um, in uh, the 110s uh, of the Common Era. Uh, what are these criteria that you set out? And that you ultimately, I think, accept or augment from Barclay? And how did they arise and what do they attempt to uh, ultimately establish?
0: Yeah, so Barclay in his, as I said, fabulous article does not have a problem in general with these criteria by Richard B. Hayes. Um, he just doesn't think that they are applicable to this specific context. Uh, I by contrast don't think that these criteria by Bar- uh, by Richard B Hayes are helpful in establishing intertextual relationships of any kind. So be- because of that I, I thought I would that it, that it was necessary to approach the whole issue in a more fundamental way. And then I noticed when reading and rereading Barker's article several times that this article actually poses several, very fundamental questions to this subtext hypothesis of especially anti Wright and Neil Elliott, and that you, you can basically stack these questions on top of each other. Um, so you begin with a very basic question, and then you can ask a follow-up question. And, and only if, if we can affirm all these questions, we are basically in the position to say that this hypothesis is, has a general plausibility it could be right, But if if we only negate one of these questions, basically the whole thing breaks down because one of the pillars of this hypothesis um, is is not fulfilled. It's not there. Right. So I, I really thought it would be good to lay out Barclay's critique in such a way because it would allow other scholars as well to. To, to engage with my argument and perhaps also to locate the disagreement. So they could say, yeah, I, I think the first three questions could be answered affirmatively better than the fourth not or something like that. And then we, we can have a more nuanced and more precise discussion. So um, and I addressed these questions, these criteria in my, in my book, Hidden Criticism. But then Laura Robinson wrote an article in New Testament Studies um, it's called "Hidden Transcripts." The supposedly self-censoring Paul in Rome is surveillance state in modern Pauline scholarship. It, it was published in 2021, and she basically reinforces some of the same arguments that Barclay makes, but, uh, adds some some more details to some of them. So, so as the article, the title of the article suggests, she also takes issue with this idea that there are hidden transcripts in Paul's letters and as the subtitle says she doesn't think that Rome was like a surveillance state a modern surveillance state that would have cared about Paul's letters um and she thinks that critique in the letter in these letters would not have been dangerous and that Paul for that reason did not censor himself but that he could just have said openly whatever he wanted so combining the critique of Barclay's article and this also fabulous article by uh, Laura Robinson um, I come up with this list of criteria that is based on the work, but basically in my in my words, in, in, in the order that I thought is most natural. Um, and perhaps you can just look at some of these questions, because at least you mentioned at least one of them already, namely the question of how dangerous it was to be a Christian. Um, so I I have the list of, of questions, the combined list of questions from both articles in my book on page uh, forty two. Perhaps we can just go through them very uh, quickly. So so, so 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 the first question, the first question is, um, are the Pauline letters affected by the rule of rules of public discourse at all? And that's a point that Barclay makes. He says, well, I mean, writing letters is basically like writing a diary. It, it means you just say what you think. These are private letters. Um, so Paul, we, we, in Paul's letters, if he don't find anything ne- negative about em- the emperor, then probably he didn't want to say anything negative about the emperor. It doesn't make to look for a subtext. But I do think there's some there are some good arguments to be made about um, Paul having to be careful about where his letters end up, and the very fact that we read his letters today might be a confirmation of the fact that these fears uh, were justified, right? So, but but if, if if we grant this condition to be ful- fulfilled, we still have to clarify whether these R- Roman rules actually forbid open criticism of aspects of the Roman Empire, and that's also where Barclay refers to Philo, who at times can be quite critical of the Roman emperor, t- Tacitus, even a Roman historiographer, um, and also Laura Robinson pointing out that the Christians were just not not dangerous, and there were no laws against them and, and things like that. And, and that's actually where I think this trajan blind correspondence that you mentioned is really important. Um, because in this correspondence from the beginning of the second century, uh, we, we learn about Christians who get executed as Christians. And for a long time, the debate has been whether it is Pliny who builds on prior a legislation against Christianity, in who then says, well, I mean, we, we at least shouldn't search for these people, you know, leave, leave them alone if, if possible, or whether it's the other way around, whether basically Gretchen is the one who creates this law against Christianity, makes Christianity illegal, so that if you are now, so that after that you can be executed for the Norman ipsum, for just, just a name, just of being called a Christian or calling yourself a Christian. And I built here on research by uh, James Cork-Rapster, who is an expert on this issue, who has pointed out that this whole framing of this correspondence as an issue of religious policies is basically wrong. It's not at all about religious politics. It's just about a Roman governor who has to deal with a lot of, of um, cases every day it just has a couple of minutes for each case and then uh, 10 people are brought before him and people say well there are some troublesome there might be uh, an illegal association they, they they are doing crazy things we don't know it's secret and, and he just kills them because he thinks well what what could go wrong uh, these are troublesome people i better kill them and that's just what happened to minorities at that time and then later when he recognizes that uh, it's a widespread phenomenon and the elites might be involved and they might actually bring him before the Senate in Rome, which basically happened to the person who had the governorship before him. Um, then he recognizes that he has right to the emperor and the emperor does exactly what uh, uh, Bellini wants him to do. He, he basically writes, you, you've done well, everything is fine. So he, he, he gives him this letter that Bellini can then use in case somebody critiques him. But, it is only in retrospect that the whole thing that, that Pliny even recognizes basically that there is a religious dimension to this, and that these people do not are not willing to sacrifice to the image of the emperor. In, in the first instance, they are just killed because they seem troublesome, and that's something uh, that is quite significant. I conclusion that is very significant because it means that the whole question of when Christianity became illegal is is, is the wrong question. It, it it was not illegal before Trajan, but it was also not illegal after Trajan. Um, but even though Christianity was not illegal during the first 200 um, years of its existence, it, it still was never harmless at any point in time. The thing that happened to these Christians could also have happened to communities of Paul. And the very fact that Paul apparently managed to stand before several governors governors, uh, without being executed at the spot, right, and, and, and ending up in Rome only so late actually shows that he could be quite diplomatic. And I think if, if he had said some of the things that he writes in his letters to a Roman governor, um, he would not have survived that long. So to come back to this question, I do think it is dangerous for people like Paul, that is for minorities who have a better reputation to make any kinds of critical statements about the Roman emperor or about their neighbors, or just to be troublesome in terms of economics, right? I mean, everything could be used against you. Um, So I clearly grant that point now and then to, to move on, the third question is Did Paul have an exposure to these elements and perceive them as specifically Roman? I, I do think the first part is uncontested now. There's Roman ideology in many forms visible at every place Paul visited. Um, and I also think it, it was cast in specifically Roman light, even though for Paul, of course, this was all part of a larger phenomenon of, of uh, idol worship. Um, and that's also why I think as a Jew, we can grant the fourth question to be, uh, to, to be answered in the affirmative way. That is, can we expect Paul to have had a critical stance toward those elements? I do think that's pretty clear. And, and then the fifth question, I, I add this from Laura's article, can we even identify a plausible occasion that might have compelled Paul to express these opinions in a specific situation? And I think that's perhaps the, the most fundamental thing I took away from Laura's article, that <laughs> indeed... Uh, Paul might have had very nasty things to, to say about uh, the emperor, but that just doesn't mean that he felt compelled to, to include these thoughts in his letters, uh, neither in the, uh, either on, the, on the subtext or on the surface of the letter, right? I mean, perhaps he just thought these things or told them to other people when they were sharing a meal or something like that, but it just doesn't mean that it has to be in the letter. There needs to be an occasion for that. And then the sixth question, again, from Barclay, from the original set of uh, questions that I asked myself, is it reasonable in light of Paul's personality to assume that he expressed this critical stance in the subtext of his letters? And this is when I, at this point, I originally became skeptical of Wright's hypothesis because Barclay makes this point that Paul usually doesn't pull any punches, right? I mean, we, we know this from his opponents, from Galatians, for example, and also from 1 Corinthians, the way he talks about idol worship. Um, that's not subtle, right? I mean, calling, saying that demons are involved and things like that, um, and basically discouraging from participation in idol worship, and that actually was very subversive politically at that time because if, if you if you made the gods angry, that was bad for society, right? That, that was one of the reasons why people went after Christians uh, because. Not because they disliked their religion, but because they thought that these people are somehow bad for society. They are asocial, um, and so yeah. At this at this point, interestingly, I originally became convinced by Barclay and thought, okay, perhaps it, it, perhaps this is where um, where we have identified a real obstacle, um, real obstacle of for, for this hypothesis that Paul avoids uh, uses the subtext because he wants to avoid persecution. And then, but perhaps I, I, I end with this, uh, returning to Laura's article, another thing that I learned from Laura's article is actually um, rethinking my own stance on this sixth, sixth um, question. Because Laura has this wonderfully vivid description of Paul's mission in her article, which, which I would also like to quote, if, if, if I may. It, 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 it's, from, it's from page 70 to 71 in her article, And I discuss it in the, I think, in the first chapter of my book. Um, She writes, If we look at our earliest source for Paul's legal trouble, Acts, it seems that local officials did not need to know much about what Paul taught in order to find him dangerous. Paul's high conflict relationship with other Christians, his complicated status in non-Christian synagogues, and his mission to bring pagans into monolatrous worship of Israel's God made him a troubling figure already. Paul did not need to be found denouncing the emperor to end up in prison. This conflict with virtually every existing social group outside his own churches was a problem already. Paul was a frequent recipient of synagogue dis- discipline. He disturbed the peace enough to earn corporal cul- punishment. He made a habit of convincing pagans to abandon their religion and follow foreign gods. There were he there were riots. When placed in this context, Paul's eventual execution is not a mystery that needs to be explained with anti-imperial codes. Paul was a habitual, highly visible troublemaker, and his letters would not need to be decoded to prove that. And yeah, v- wonderfully put. And for some reason, that, that triggered me to, to rethink my own position on Paul's courage and whether Paul's personality really is a is a good justification for just neglecting this idea of a hidden criticism and caution. Because it appeared to me that the guy that she paints here so vividly is, is somebody under a lot of pressure. And uh, yeah, it, it makes sense to me if, if you are under a lot of pressure already to avoid unnecessary ca- conflict. So it, it would actually, it actually reinforces my idea, my, my impression now that Wright might actually have gotten this right, um, that perhaps even though Paul, at points, is really frank about what he thinks, at other points he just thinks, okay, I, I don't, I don't need this uh, additional conflict now. I mean, we, I, I don't want to my, my church just just to cease to exist, right? I I need to be diplomatic in some way. And, and as I said, the very fact that he survived standing before several governors shows that he could be diplomatic. Uh, so he, even though he's this troublesome figure, he apparently. Just did not want to be killed, like at the very first instance. Something that we later uh, have in the, at least in the accounts of martyrdom in early Christianity, where people are really eager to di- to die as soon as possible at the hands of their enemies. That that op- apparently was not the philosophy of Paul, who really wanted to get some things done. So because of that, I actually in my new book am a bit more sympathetic to to this idea that perhaps we find some critical remarks in the subtext of Paul's letters, uh, simply because um, Paul wanted to be more careful uh, in these particular instances. Um, But generally, even though I admit that, and even though I think Wright might have been more correct than I thought initially, I do think that he misses some important aspects and that we should not focus too much on uh, on this aspect of coded criticism even though it is, of course, a very a very, good framing, which makes our research very interesting um, because it sounds so much like Dan Brown and like detective work and things like that.
1: Well, thank you so much, Christoph. Uh, you walked us brilliantly through the, the uh, criteria that you uh, cover in, in the book. And I did get the sense um, from your first chapter, especially, but uh, in continuous reference uh, to it, that uh, Laura Robinson's article was especially generative of your uh, rethinking or your reentry into the, the conversation. So um, you've sort of uh, foreshadowed perhaps uh, where we're going, but uh, uh, turning now to your second chapter, you do make uh, what was for me as a reader A surprising move uh, away from the notion of hidden critique uh, of the Roman Empire and Paul, and you suggest instead that uh, we can find more overt but perhaps overlooked criticism not in the subtext of his letters or in the hidden transcript, as it were, but inherent to the text themselves. Uh, So you may have already answered parts of this, but I'll just ask again. Uh, What for you has encouraged this transition away from the uh, hidden transcript of the letters to more overt uh, 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 criticism? Uh, um, Did it come out in your reevaluation of your argument from Robinson's article or others who have contributed to the discussion? And uh, uh, while you uh, think about that question, I will uh, add to it and say that it was a surprising move for me as a reader, but also a welcome move, because um, I would personally uh, self-locate among the perspective that Paul is more identifiably critical of Rome uh, and you know, people who take refuge in the promises or the governing logic of Rome. Uh, In your first chapter, for example, you already call attention to 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6, where Paul says uh, kind of offhandedly that the rulers of his age are perishing. Uh, Basically, they are dying, (laughs) a word uh, consolation that he uses several times in that uh, Corinthian correspondence. So it doesn't seem like a hidden transcript to me, even if it is not, you know, front and center of every part of uh, Paul's letters. It's not his main message that he is uh, trying to get across um and you know uh uh, we could marshal other examples from his letters as well um so i'm curious how you came to this uh, new direction for you as it seems to me and if you want to dispute that characterization as a new direction you're you're welcome to as well
0: well thank you it's it's an excellent question and i i think something that's very important that perhaps i should even have made more clear now that i think about it in the book because it's, of course, quite ironic that, on the one hand, I'm more sympathetic to Wright's whole notion of a hidden criticism because of the avoidance of persecution in this new book. But at the same time, I draw more attention to other reasons for why the subtext might have been used. So it's, um, yeah, it's perhaps just because I accept more statements as critical now, so I accept more of the, the kind of subtext that Wright has in view, but also, and even more so, I, I look for these other things. Um, I, I did have, even in the, the first book, in Hidden Criticism, I did think about alternative reasons for why Paul might have used the subtext for critique, um, especially because I did not follow in the end Wright's idea that avoidance of persecution was the determining factor. So, the, uh, But it's more like a questionnaire raised in that book. I basically asked, do we really need this kind of excuse for the subtext to be the, 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 um, uh, the level of the text uh, that is most suitable for communication? Or perhaps could it be that the subtext is something that is very natural in some, some contexts? And indeed, the more I thought about it, um, it occurred to me that, yeah, sometimes just... I mean, confronting people in their face is not the most effective way, right? To, to, to convince them. So if, if Paul had attacked the Philippians for their Roman pride and things like that, it, it might have been much more difficult to challenge them um, compared to using the more subtle way that he portrays his own journey and his own um, realization that he will not count on his on his human social capital, so to speak, and the way he then brings into the uh, citizenship in heaven in, in, in chapter three. So perhaps it's it's so subtle because it's more effective. And I was, yeah, so there were several factors that, that made me to to realize that and to think more about that. The first perhaps is my students that I had that I taught about this issue. They, will, they generally like the kind of, Argument that I presented, but when it then in the end, basically, um, submitted to Barclay's critique. and said, "Well, but this last criterion, yeah, that's quite quite convincing." They they were not that convinced. They they, they told me about it. Just because in one passage, like First Corinthians two six that you bring up, he's so so uncautious. That doesn't mean that he's un. he, he, he doesn't. Uh, he isn't cautious. Cautious. Uh, at any point right so and uh, i basically accepted the challenge from my students and thought more about this and then as i um, researched this category of narrative in paul's letters and this uh, inquired uh, whether or not we can find stories that paul tells to to his audiences i recognized that almost every instance of a story that paul tells we can observe how the context in which the story is told somehow reduces the burden that is placed on the grammar of his narration. So he, for example, sometimes he just uses a participle or an infinitive or even just a noun to refer to a specific event and he doesn't actually tell it, narrate it in the indicative. Why? Because the audience already knows the story. He just wants to reframe the story. He wants to cause a certain reevaluation of the story or he wants to um, he wants to encourage certain behavior, but he doesn't want to just relay new information for the purpose of just informing people. And that's why his stories are so subtle and so succinct. And so with respect to stories in Paul's letters, this is not at all something that is strange or uh, Uh, That's the rule. We almost never get a strict narration in Paul's letters. That's uh, in fact the exception. And so it occurred to me that with respect to critique of the Roman Empire, uh, it might be the same. Um, His audience knows exactly the, the circumstances in which Paul is writing the letters. They know about the political events of the time. It would be strange if he talked about it in very explicit terms. Even we these days talk about certain political events just in Uh, with hints right we we just we we, i i don't tell you what happened at the last election or something like that we might refer to some things but there's no need for me or for you to 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 tell each other about what exactly happened so um i think paul's counter-imperial stories his counter-narratives so to speak um just are very similar to his other narratives too he doesn't make a difference between narratives that he tells Against Roman ideology and narratives that he tells against the general uh, assumptions among his congregation, so to speak, and and then perhaps I just another factor was that I encountered in my own lived experience a more dynamic interaction between public and hidden transcripts. So for for example, um, the, I noticed that there are many geographical different differences with respect to. Um, what can, what is allowed in the, in the in the public transcript and what isn't. For example, I, I might make, write a tweet and some people in the US might find it inflammatory, but I just think it's totally innocent and it has nothing to do with the cultural wars, wars that you guys have because I'm just writing in a different context. So I miscalculated the, 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 the public protocol that is in place on Twitter and some, something similar might have happened to Paul himself. So it, it might not have been intentional of him to... Give us this insight into his hidden print, hidden transcript. It might just have happened for that reason. Or we also have, of course, diachronic changes in the public transcript, so that at some points you can say things like you could say certain things some decades ago that these days would be judged to be very um, to be wrong, right, and to to be cancelled if you were to say. Um, and, and sometimes we just miscalculate what protocol applies we in, in germany we had the case where minister was making nasty comments about the chancellor merkel it, because he was on a online chat platform and he didn't realize that thousands of people were listening to this he thought it was kind of a private conversation so and sometimes we we, we know that we shouldn't say certain things and we still do it just to uh, because of the emotions that we have just because we, we want to get it out right and so I wonder, perhaps, whether this is what happened to Paul in First Corinthians two six. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, Paul was mad at the Romans, right? They killed his hero. They killed Jesus. I mean, and then he talks about this, and then he, for some reason he adds this this remark, which perhaps wasn't wise. Which a remark that he probably didn't would not have said before a governor. He would not have said like, well, you you guys are perishing anyway. I don't care. Um, God will judge you. He probably didn't say these things um so yeah perhaps that that explains some of the phenomena and so so all in all i think it would be wise of us to to move away from this notion of intentionally hidden criticism even though it might explain some of the data um and it would be better to focus more on the different ways in which we could get a glance through this murky window of history into this private sphere of paul's communication with his co-workers and his communities and privates so some insights that into the kind of unease, as I call it in the book, that he might have had with respect to some aspects of the ideology of the Roman Empire.
1: Well, whatever the reason that he lets out the uh, comment in uh, 1 Corinthians two six that the uh, rulers of the age are perishing, he also says it again in 2 Corinthians 2.15, uh, which uh, came to my mind as I was reading in uh, 1 Corinthians two six, And... Um, Given where your argument goes, there is some serendipity that uh, this in Second Corinthians two fifteen um, immediately precedes uh, the verse which you spend two chapters unpacking for us, uh, which is Second uh, Corinthians two fourteen. Um, um, in those two chapters, you perform a lengthy exegesis of the verse and explain why the language Paul is using there uh, relates to his feelings or his unease, as you put it, uh, toward uh, uh, the Roman uh imperial ideology um can you start from a very basic place uh for us of uh reciting second 2 corinthians 214 and contextualizing it uh perhaps with um a, a, a nod toward how the verse is typically handled by other scholars when they go to interpret it and why you think they're not uh, appropriately attuned to paul's uh, use of roman imperial imagery and uh, i also want to ask does this verse serve for you as sort of a tip of the iceberg to paul's other overlooked instances of unease with uh, empire yeah, yeah so
0: second corinthians two fourteen. 14 it, it interrupts a sequence of events that Paul tells about his his missionary journey, uh, and we can we can talk later about why that is and uh, why at this point he interrupts with this Thanksgiving of two fourteen, where he says thanks be to God, and then he characterizes this God in a certain way, and it is clear that the way he characterizes this God. Um, also is, is the reason for why he thanks God. So he doesn't say thanks be to God because he does certain things but he says thanks be to God who does certain things. So he says thanks be to God um, to the one who always and then we have this participle from, um, from the verb uh, who always us uh, in Christ and who spreads the, uh, the, the scent of his knowledge um, and through us uh, in, in every place. So it's, it's two participles, um, one about this spreading of, of, of fragrance and one about this whatever that is supposed to mean. And it's it's a passage that has been debated for a very long time. Um, some people think this verb does not have any military or Roman connotations. They just think it's perhaps like the second part, it has to do with um, making us known. He makes us known, and he um, through us, he reveals his, his knowledge, the fragrance of his knowledge, for example. Um, or they think it just means he leads us around. Yeah, mm-hmm. He leads us around, and because he leads us always around, he makes us known in every place. Then there are other people who think that it has a military component, or a victorious component, um, so, for example, I think the King James Version, let me see, says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. And I think if, if you would ask an ordinary speaker today what this means, most of them would probably not say that this has something to do with Rome, but rather that it means that God gives, gives us victory in perhaps our daily struggles or... or, or yeah, I mean, basically, also perhaps in politics, if you are Donald Trump, who uh, promised victory after victory, it's very reminiscent for me of this passage because that's how the passage was used uh, through the centuries as a promise to Christians that um, God will always give us victories against uh, victory against our enemies. Um, and, then, and then there are people who say, no, it, it's it's not just victorious; it's it's military and it's Roman, so it has to do with a celebration of a victory. Um, of a military victory, and more precisely, of a victory that is celebrated in Rome at that time. And I think it's that's precisely right. This verb is always used in antiquity um, for the celebration of a triumphal procession, as we say in Rome, um, by a general, and that at uh, Paul's time this meant the uh, the emperor himself or his family. And the interesting thing is when it's used with the with a uh, with an object like here, so God is the one who's celebrating that triumphal procession, but he's not just celebrating that triumphal procession, but he's doing something. He's 370 imas, he's triumphing us, and that always means, if you look at the sources, uh, that people are shown to the public in Rome as prisoners of war, as part of this celebration, a celebration that could take days and during which you. He showed you uh, the, the things that you got from the other country, the, the, the gold and the captives to the watching public um, in Rome. So that I'm, I think it's pretty clear if you look at the sources that this is what the verb has to mean. And this interestingly means that this is the one passage, the one verse in Paul's letters, where in our imagination the Roman Empire is most clearly evoked only to be pushed out again of his triumphal chariot by the Jewish gods uh, in a heartbeat. So, and I think it's that's important for us to understand. It's I'm not just making an argument here about that there might have been some Roman connotation in the background or something. No, a, 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 an audience at that time would have thought about the Roman emperor in his triumphal chariot and would have understood that Paul uses this metaphor in a very strange way by using God as the trumpeter, the Jewish God as the put by portraying himself as a captive in the triumphal procession. And I I do think it's not just um, uh, a misdetail, because this passage has been analyzed for decades and in many, many publications and monographs and articles. And still, people were somehow are um, all too willing to overlook this Roman dimension, not all of them, but many. Uh, And I think it's significant also because the secondary literature ignores the very concrete historical backdrop that I see. So I think there's a very concrete historical event behind this usage of the metaphor, and I think there's there are very good arguments for that. But um, the secondary literature does not pick up on that at all, and I think that that needs an explanation. And I think the explanation for that is that we are just not attuned to this kind of political dimension of Paul's letter, uh, Paul's letters, and so that if we find if we now are able to detect this kind of um, Roman resonance in in, in such a passage, we might be able to find much
1: more. Uh, for any listeners who weren't expecting a uh, intense Greek word study, well, uh, we're into that portion of the podcast episode uh, because uh, it, you go into great depth about uh, the triumbus or a triumphus as it would be in uh, uh, Latin. Uh, so, I wanted to ask you: In what context would something like this be called or organized? Uh, was it was it did it happen in Rome in minor circumstances, or was it only in major circumstances? uh and um you do make the argument that um, paul is thinking back to a very specific event uh, that happens uh, some uh, uh, eleven or twelve years before he's writing uh, what the letter that becomes uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, and that is uh, Claudius's procession after his um, defeat of Britannia. Uh, so, um, why is it so apparent to you that uh, he would be referring to this very specific uh, circumstance rather than perhaps the general idea of a triumphus or you know a, a, a procession after a great military victory? And furthermore, is uh, Paul actually Critiquing Rome here, or is he adapting um, expectations of his audience? Um, you, you cite some historical examples from Seneca and the Laus uh, um, which also discuss this uh, event that happened in the year 44, Claudius's procession. It, so, is there more to be said about the notion here that Paul, as a captive, in in this procession with his co-workers sort of extends the uh, enslavement metaphor that he tends to use in his letters Mm, as well.
0: mm. Yeah So, so, so first of all perhaps I should point out that um, if we speak about a Roman triumphal procession, that's just because in, our, in, in, language, in English today, we could also talk about a triumphal procession after a, I don't know, a football game or something like that. And it, but in antiquity, you, you didn't say a Roman triumphal procession in, in Latin or Greek because it was clear a triambus always took place in Rome. And in the two or three times where it didn't happen in Rome, it is pointed out that this was sacrilege, something that should not have happened And people, it actually is a kind of oxymoron, something that's not possible, right? Yes. Um, so uh, first of all, I should point out, it, it's, it's closely connected to Rome and it took place only after usually major military advancements. The Senate granted it to the general um, but it was a very rare event at Paul's time, so you often read in the literature something about three hundred to uh, three hundred twenty triumphal processions that had been celebrated at that time, or something like that. It's true that there was a large number of triumphal processions and you you, you had some emperors like Augustus who celebrated several triumphal processions, you had some years in which people in Rome had the pleasure of um, um, watching several triumphal processions, but it's important to remember that during Paul's lifetime only a single emperor celebrated a triumphal procession. Uh, uh, um, Children by emperors did things and there, there were other kinds of celebrations, but there was only one large real triumphal procession by a Roman emperor, with the next one happening after um, the defeat of the Jewish people, when Paul already was dead. So for this reason, I do not think that there was a notion of a triumphal procession like a kind of regular event that everybody would have known about. It, the celebration by, by Qualius was a once-in-a-lifetime experience for people in Rome, um, for most people in Rome at least. So it was something really extraordinary extraordinary. And I also don't think that we have good archaeological evidence of uh, commemorations of triumphal processions, partly because triumphantists really try to emphasize the prior victory in their coins and in in the architecture that they built, because the triumph itself was a very fleeting honor. You celebrated this for one or two or three days, and after that, you became a normal person again. During the triumphal procession, the emperor was cast like Jupiter, like a divine figure. So... uh, There was this idea, even from Republican times, when people were generals, then had this almost divine honor, and then returned to be senators among other senators and uh, private citizens. Um, So, from from that tradition, it was uncommon to depict the actual triumphal procession in coins and on coins and things like that. By contrast, uh, we do have extraordinary archaeological evidence from exactly the time when Paul was active in Corinth. That they had a cult specifically for this victory over Britannia which was the basis for uh, the triumphal procession that Claudius celebrated. So we know that at this time there was a yearly festival during which the Corinthians would have been reminded of this triumphal procession of the victory by Claudius and that would have been accompanied by by sacrifices for for the Roman Emperor. Um, And moreover we know from Acts 17 that Paul meets in Corinth Uh, Aquila and Priscilla who come from Rome. Why? Because Claudius had expelled all the Jews. And if if we then add to this the consideration that Paul might have thought about going to Rome and then to Spain from Corinth, I think it's very natural to assume that he somehow talked about this one person who was responsible for thwarting uh, their plans. right? Um, So it's extraordinary that we have this archaeological evidence and even potential eyewitnesses. Um, So of this event. So I think it's it's at least a very plausible background. And, and then if we actually look at how Paul's metaphor resonates with the public discourse on this, as, as you mentioned, I think several parallels um, are just obvious. So for example, you, you mentioned the Laos Desiris, which is probably the only poem or song that we have from antiquity that probably was written for this specific poem for possession. We don't have any other song. I'm recalling from an, another triumphal procession, and it emphasizes that Claudius brought the ocean, which was the, the formerly the the border of the empire, into the center of the empire. So emphasizes this global dimension. Um, and Claudius does the same in his speech that is recorded in different sources. He too was obviously quite proud of this accomplishment. Um, and of course, what do we read in Second Corinthians two fourteen? We in the second uh, part of the verse, we read about Paul making uh, Paul making known the descent of the knowledge of God um, in every place, right? There too, we have this, this global dimension. And then time, as I said, it was, if you could celebrate a triumphal procession for several days, that meant you had a lot of gold to show, right? That, that was impressive. So, but this particular triumphal procession, takes place always, or perhaps we are thinking about an infinitive number of triumphal processions which would have been equally impressive from a Roman perspective because Claudius could only celebrate one, uh, even though a friend of his uh, had wished him to celebrate more during his lifetime. So there are dissonances between this public protocol and then what Paul tells about this. Um, and then the, the issue of captives. Apparently, Claudius could not produce that many impressive captives because in fifty one he finally gets Caratacus, a chieftain from Britannia, into his hands and he shows him in, in Rome to the public in a way that contemporaries say that it was a kind of completion of the original triumph which had obviously lacked this kind of spectacular. So it, it's interesting to see Paul um, pushes all these, all these buttons and um, I think that, that's not an accident Um, I do think that primarily he's interested in attacking the Corinthians, who already in the first chapter are not very satisfied with the way he he plans his journeys and then decides not to come, even though he said he would come. And now, in the second chapter, he just told them about a great missionary opportunity that he had, but that he, for some reason, left because he he wanted to meet Titus to learn more about the Corinthians. So, So that also was not very impressive, not the kind of that you would expect from a great evangelist and it precisely at this point that paul knows that the corinthians would object he uses this metaphor to make um to to paint them as the watching crowd in rome um, that, that sees him in this shameful role as a captive but at the same time for paul perhaps facilitated by what you said by the fact that he can portray him as a, a slave of christ in in, in other places too um, for Paul himself, this is not that, that bad a thing, because he says, well, if God is the one in charge, after all, if he's the triumphator, and you have an issue with me and my movements, you actually have an issue with God. And also, it might look shameful at first, but look what I do. As a captive I bring glory to the Emperor. And that, that's indeed exactly what happened at that time. So you did not want to have ugly people in your in your Frankfurt procession. You actually you gave them you gave them good clothes and you to to care that they did not evoke pity, but they, they were like like real royal people, uh, because that was was making the, the procession all the more impressive. And so it, it seems to me that there's at least Um, even though the Corinthians are the the ones that get attacked there's at least a a kind of sidesweep against Claudius. I do think that perhaps Paul used this here because of this diachronic change in the public transcript, because Claudius at this point in time has just died. Um, And we also have the Apgolochitosis, this uh, satire from Seneca, which also talks um, about this triumphal procession of Claudius. And which, which basically almost uses identical words from the last Tessaris. It it it, leak, it says the same thing. Oh, you 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 subdued Britannia and everything, but apparently everybody at the time knew that this military accomplishment was not as great as Claudius wanted people uh, make believe, because everybody knew that he was in Britannia only for sixteen days and then returned. So everybody knew it was a kind of fake accomplishment and a fake triumphal procession. And now that Claudius is dead, Paul can actually say this, and because the, the public transcript has changed, right? Nero has killed Claudius probably, and at least finds it very funny when Seneca makes these kinds of jokes um, about Claudius. So I think that's the kind of general, um, general atmosphere in which, um, yeah, Paul also contributes to this wider discourse about a contemporary political event, even though it's just a kind of presupposition of his metaphor, and that the, the metaphor is directed specifically against um, the Corinthians.
1: And uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, Paul is somewhat defending his missionary movements, but he's also, as you say, uh, almost putting the Corinthians in an embarrassing position of having them as onlookers uh, of uh, Paul's own captivity, as it were. And uh, um, for for this purpose, I suppose... um, uh, the, uh, the the metaphor of, of, of a Roman Thriombos uh, was especially useful for him. And so he's able to uh, simultaneously critique uh, uh, the ongoings of the Roman Empire, but also use them to his advantage uh, as part of the uh, shared cultural encyclopedia, as you go on to say, I believe. Um I want to turn now to something that I, uh, I found a little surprising that wasn't a part or a main focus of uh, your uh, of your argument, uh, because um, I didn't see uh, any major reflection on Jewish apocalypticism that uh, some scholars say is reflected in Paul. So J. C. Becker, Pamela Eisenbaum, uh, Magnus Sederholm, and, and others. Um, I wanted to ask for what is what for you is the relationship between the uh, apparent imminent eschatology of Paul, uh, as we see in, for example, First Corinthians, or sorry, First Thessalonians four and five, um, and um, his communities and the different theories of his. Sort of opinion on Roman imperial or political power. If, as Becker uh, states, the coherence of Paul's message is in apocalyptic eschatology, should we not expect that contempt for Rome is, uh, and the sort of expectation for its downfall, the perishing of its emperors, and so on, are all part and parcel of his letters? You know, this isn't a hidden element, and that this is the reason that his communities are being saved in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, that's
0: an excellent question and a very adequate question to ask a Pauline scholar. Um, I just, I'm just, I'm not sure that I, uh, perhaps I just don't count as a full Pauline scholar because there's certain aspects of Pauline scholarship that I, um, that perhaps I haven't incorporated yet enough or it just don't interest me enough. So perhaps it's more an issue of personality. But I also think that there's at least some justification for looking at Paul not so much as the great theological, and that includes, apocalyptic thinker, and to think more about the pragmatic dimension of his letters. So I'm very much focused on his everyday interactions, which, of course, that's the whole point of this idea of the core of the gospel and things like that, are informed by these wider perspectives. But I think that at least in his letters, um, we, we we learn more about the specific circumstances um, that he has to deal with, and actually that they are not they are often not even that much theologically interpreted um, than we usually assume. So I'm just, it's not a really good answer, but in my opinion, we we can explain many things that we find in Paul's letters just on this this more down-to-earth pragmatical level of everyday interaction and we don't make to have recourse to an underlying um, theological framework be it apocalyptic or narrative or jewish or things like that so perhaps i would at least to answer your question somehow <laughs> uh, at least point out that barclay too um belongs i think broadly speaking to this um, to this fraction of um, uh, the apocalyptic interpretation of Paul. But for for Barclay, Rome is just not the real enemy, not the ultimate enemy. It's just one manifestation of evil. And I think perhaps that's that's where I agree most with Barclay and least with Wright. So I, I don't think that uh, Rome, the, the way Paul reinterprets Daniel does not, does not cast Rome as the as, as the final enemy of, of, of any sort. And so perhaps we could even think about in this context about Colossians 2.15, if it is authentic, um, because that too uh, the same verb is used. Um, but this time for, for the paros. And the real question the, the interesting question is um, who's meant here? Does this include perhaps even Caesar, right? the, the emperors? And what does this imply? Does this mean that, in the end, Paul and Caesar walk together, side by side, as captives in, in, in God's triumphal procession? Does this have implications for a wider apocalyptic perspective that ends with reconciliation, perhaps, of some strange um, sort? Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about these kinds of issues, and I think it's fascinating to, to go, go down these rabbit holes um, but I think that's
1: all that I have at this point as, as an answer to this
0: question, as important as it undoubtedly is
1: uh, for polling scholarship. Well, an apocalyptic Paul is far from a universally held opinion in Pauline scholarship, but uh, it's it's one that I have interacted with before, so I was just curious about that. Um, let's turn to a more, um, I guess, hot button issue when it when it comes to Paul, because um, a book on Paul and Empire could not possibly avoid talking about Romans thirteen, which we've mentioned before, which is Paul's uh, most uh, overt comments that are seemingly flowery and uh, approving of uh, uh, the Roman government. Um, <clears throat> You do delve into this in your fifth chapter, I believe, into Romans 13 in a major way. Uh, so I'm curious, first of all, do you think that Romans 13 has been actually kind of generative of the sense for some scholars that Paul must have encoded some hidden criticism because he is so flowery and so uh, pro-Roman on first blush in, in this uh In this chapter. And um, since you do write that Romans 13 is a confusing passage and very difficult to interpret, and I'm quoting from pages 40 and 106 from your book, (laughs) uh, I do want to ask, uh, can you offer some comments for us on how we should hear uh, this passage of Romans 13, one through seven, which does seem so affirmative of of, of the government? Uh, Do we accept it at face value or with some uh, perhaps conscious reflection on Paul's own history of uh, provocations, imprisonments, and as you say, uh, being put before uh, 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 governors to answer for himself on several occasions.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, as you say, you have to deal with this passage if you are talking about Paul and empire um, for obvious reasons. But actually, I'm wondering whether this is more because of the effective history of this passage. So if, if we did not have a heading of that passage that says Paul and state power or the church and the state or something like that, is it really that obvious that we that this passage is the most relevant discussion, the, the most relevant Pauline comment on the Roman Empire? I'm not sh- so sure about that because for example, every time he mentions crucifixion, I would say the Romans are clearly in view. Um, Like every time the, the comments like, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, the Romans are clearly in view, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, the Emperor is clearly in view. Um, so, it, it, it's a long discussion and I've edited I've with it, um, I've analyzed it in my, in my book on, on, on narratives in Paul too, because I think there's a narrative dimension to it and it, it's a carefully structured composition, so I, I, I don't want to say that this is just a throwaway remark by Paul. But I, I want to question to some remark that it is really true that we have to begin that this passage, like is the first obstacle that we have to deal with, and then we can actually go to the other passages. I, I would I would put the procedure on the uh, on its head. I would start with all these many comments on crucifixion and with the context and everything, and then we can address Romans thirteen, and then we we can see which solution, uh, which interpretation is best. So. Uh, as you say, the other um, interpreters that take Paul to be anti imperial also deal with this. There's, for example, Neil Elliott who thinks there's a, when Paul says that this, uh, the state, uh, quotation marks, it does not carry this word in vain. Paul actually interacts in a critical way, shows sh- shows the his hidden critic his hidden transcript in veiled form, um, because there's a contrast between this idea and the notion um, that Nero is talking about, that he is such a mild person who does not make use um, of, of, of force, who is not brutal and things like that. So that, that might be similar to, to use another example to uh, like a farmer in Germany during the Third Reich um, who calls his uh, his ox uh, uh, Adolf and then punches it all the time. So you, you, could, you could say, well, I mean, I called, I called this animal Adolf because I appreciate Furio so much. But at the same time, you—it's not—it's not obviously bad. But at the same time, you can get let out your, all your aggression. And in a similar way, Paul could say, "Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong about saying you—you you, don't—the uh, Romans don't carry this Virgin Rain, right? I mean, you don't—it's it, not fun for you to—it's it, not a joke. It's just veneration of, on my side when I say this. But at the same time, people would understand that he's. Actually, pointed to the brutality of the regime. So that's what some people like Nilali do, and that there's of course Eddie Wright who just says no. I mean, that just is, is the other side of the coin. Like for Paul's Jewish perspective, Paul doesn't like the the pagan rulers, but but he also doesn't like the doesn't like anarchy. So he accepts that these pagan rulers, as bad as they might be, might be necessary to ensure ins- order. So personally. Within the spectrum, I I, I differ from all of those opinions to some extent. I, I begin with the question of whether it's even possible to accept the passage at face value in the sense to accept the traditional interpretation that Paul is talking about, stage, church, and things like that. And I think actually that this is not just an impossible, I think this is an impossible interpretation because it would assume that Paul is a really stupid human being. Because it would it would assume that Paul that Paul that Paul really says the um, if if you're a good person nothing will happen to you in the Roman Empire <laughs> and it's just so absurd to me because how could we imagine Paul not anticipate the obvious the obvious um response by the Romans to say well what about Jesus. Does the Roman Empire also not carry the, the, the cross in vain? Is it Jesus' own fault? Why, why, why did he not receive honor by the empire? So it, it, a, a person who is so so invested in, in following the, the, the thinking of his dialogue partners in, in, in the way that we observed just in 2 Corinthians 2, that he uses such a nuanced metaphor to counter the impression that the Corinthians might have about him. To assume that such a person is so ignorant about the effects of his words in such a context um, is just absolutely unbelievable to me. So I actually do have some sympathy for the view that basically the passage must have the opposite meaning, that it must be satire completely, that it is generally about the state and about the emperor and the Roman Empire, but that Paul basically wants to, to, to say the opposite. Yeah. So, this argument has been made, and I, I do think that if you compare, for example, Seneca and Laos de Saris, you will also see that it's basically the same wording, right? It's just a different context and um, different assumptions. People yeah, so could understand this as satire, but the reason why I'm not convinced in the end is that I don't know what the Romans would have done with the pr- pragmatic dimension of this text, because Paul does not just make claims about the nature of the the state, if you think he talks about that, but he also tells the the Romans to to tell that to pay the taxes. So what are they going to do? If if, if the first part is irony, if the if the classification of the state is irony, what then about the consequential um, actions? Should they pay taxes or not? Should they not pay taxes because they are not really the these officials are not really the servants of God, or should they pay? Text knowing that these people are not uh, God's, God's friends, God's, God's servants. So th- that's why I'm in the end not convinced. And why I think the only reasonable solution of this passage, which is difficult and which is confusing, just like many other passages are too. Um, I think the text must be about a very specific situation, a situation that probably was so specific that Paul could reasonably expect that no one would have confronted him with this obvious objection about the lack of justice in Roman rule, specifically in the case of Jesus, but perhaps also with respect to other Christians who already might have died at this point in time. Um, And uh, in the book, I I compare this to Stephen Colbert, the late night host in the US. Um, In one segment, um, he, he points out that there's this... Um, one person who's accused and who is in court because um, she participated in the insurrection on January 6th. And she says, No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just a, a citizen of heaven and things like that. And, and the church the uses Romans 13 um, to, to counter this kind of line of argument. And obviously, Colbert finds it very funny. And obviously, the, the whole audience laughs. And they think it, it's a great idea to emphasize law and order by pointing to scripture, to to Romans 13. But then, of course, you could say, well, but if that's a reasonable line of argument, you could also point to Romans 13 when the Republicans um, are in the White House, like, for example, Jeff Sessions did when he uh, pointed to Romans 13 when defending the strict enactment of their immigration policy which at that point in time, Stephen Colbert also commented upon and heavily critiqued this use of scripture. So uh, apparently, if the context is specific enough, we, we, we can make these, these kinds of um, arguments and even on a very general theological level, um, without, without um, assuming that um, it, at the same time we just we, we we allow this argument to be valid in every context, right? And so I think it was a very specific context. We don't really know what it was about. It was about taxes and some other things. The, the syntax is very strange. The, the words that Paul uses are very confusing. We don't really know what kind of parties are involved. Obviously, he didn't want there to be a problem for the community. He didn't want them to experience persecution, not as Christians, but as a marginalized group in society. And at no point in time did he even consider that this section could be used um, in a general way that it later was used. Um, perhaps, uh, I wonder whether we, if we had told him how the text became, um, uh, what, what kind of effects it had later on, whether he would agree that he could have formulated things differently. But then again, I mean, he did not write for us, right? He wrote for the Romans, so I, I, sh- I think we should give him the benefit of the doubt in this case.
1: Sure, and uh, so you made the case that we should look elsewhere first before we come to Romans 13. And uh, but I could um, just for the sake of argument, I could see someone making the opposite uh, claim by saying that well, you know, Romans is the least occasional of Paul's letters. He's writing to introduce himself for the first time to a community, and therefore, oh, he's gonna he's going to basically give the introduction as if he were a first timer to a community, and so this is probably most applicable broadly to us. And uh, I'm not saying all this because I agree with it. Just uh, that uh, it's an argument that could possibly uh, be made. But as you say, uh, Romans 13, Needs to be dealt with in in some sort of way, and I think there's a way of doing that if uh, you adhere to some uh, uh, version of the apocalyptic Paul, because uh, you know Paul has has just concluded saying that God is the one that will avenge, and then after this passage he says, um, you know, you know what time it is, which is kind of a wink and nod to the end uh, uh, end of the age, as it, under the uh, apocalyptic Paul is the expectation of the end, so they're going to get what's coming to them. Pay your taxes for now, and you will have you know reward in the in the end. But I'm not forcing the, that interpretation yeah. on you at this point, of course.
0: No, 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 but 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 I do agree that there's there's a I would call it a narrative substructure, so to speak, to to borrow Richard P. Hayes' term, behind the whole passage, um, and that it's clear that whatever he discusses there in the beginning needs to be read in context of whatever God is going to do in the future. So. Interestingly, most of Paul's stories are not actually stories because they speak about the future, and usually we, we don't tell stories about the future. That's a, a, that does contradict the definition of a story, right? So, but whenever Paul's text looks like a story, most of the time he, he speaks about the future here too. But I think there's there's a, a narrative substructure that underlies the whole section, and um that that perhaps allows him to to talk about whatever is the issue in the way he does. I, I'm just not sure whether it has to be such a fundamental issue. And I I do think it's very context specific, as for example, can be seen from the fact that nobody can agree on who, who exactly is in view. In verse six, when he suddenly talks about the liturgie, the, the servants, uh, is he talking about the same people? Is he talking about new officials who are there to collect the taxes? Um, so it, it's clear that there is something specific going on, and he incorporates this. And I would agree with you into a rather we'll call it apocalyptic perspective into a narrative, perhaps that is informed by this apocalyptic view and by this perspective that looks uh, to the future, to the return of the Lord, that will um, put everything into perspective.
1: I also wonder at times, and you know, this is just a comment. I'm not asking you to respond to it, but uh, those uh, scholars who think of Paul in terms of apocalyptic if they rely too much on the idea of hidden transcripts without appealing to specifically the post-colonial scholarship that uh, undergirds um, the whole hidden transcript conversation that has taken place elsewhere in Pauline scholarship. Anyway, let's turn away from uh, Romans 13 and uh, back to uh, 2 Corinthians 2.14, which is a focus of two of the chapters of your book. You've offered a new, uh, pretty narrow interpretation, I suppose, uh, of uh, of a single word in this uh uh, in this verse, uh, appealing to Claudius's procession that happened a dozen years or so before Paul wrote it. Um, so I'm wondering, are there any specific critiques that you anticipate from other scholars and how you might respond to uh, uh, critiques to sort of inoculate against them? Yeah,
0: so one so critique that I
1: expected already
0: when writing the book and that I've now already heard by people and that is justified is that I kind of make a very general claim about the importance of political sphere for Paul but they basically only discuss this one passage. Um, So people might say that perhaps my exegesis is right of 2 Corinthians 2.14 but still the phenomenon of this kind of um, hidden transcript or unease with the Roman Empire might be quite limited. And fair enough, I mean, the, the, that's up to debate, I think. I, I do hint to some other passages, like, for example, we already discussed Colossians 2.15, 1 Corinthians 2. six, uh, Philippians 4.22 is another case in point where um, Caesar's household is mentioned. Um, I do discuss the, the whole lordship terminology, which I think is uh, Laura Robinson does not um, interpret correctly. Um, but yeah, generally, it's true that I... I'm not exhaustive at all uh, in, in in this book. Um, I have an article for, forthcoming on Galatians where we'll discuss like the different potential uh, text parts that might be read as counter narratives to Roman ideology, um, and I focus in particular on, on crucifixion because that's another issue that I think is just we, we already always think about crucifixion in this in this very theological way, but. If you look at crucifixion in Galatians, you will notice that in 2.19, um, and Paul portraying him as somebody who is crucified, right? that's like me saying, I'm sitting on an electric chair. Right? That's a really remarkable, remarkable metaphor at that point in time. And it's the same verb that um, the gospels use for the people who are crucified next to Jesus. Like it's in the, at that time, it had a very vivid, uh, vivid, vivid associations. Um, especially for the for the slaves um, from uh, Galatians 3 that that I mentioned then to um, first 28 because they had to be afraid of being crucified right that was a punishment specifically for slaves at the time Um, and then uh, 614 where we learned that the the cosmos is is crucified so what does this mean what's the cosmos it's all not exclusively but also the Roman Empire a very strange notion this idea that the empire is crucified, to some extent. Um, and even 524, when the, when the Galatians themselves are people who are active in crucifixion, they are like soldiers. like They are uh, to, to crucify their own um, bad desires, but they are, they are active. like They can imagine themselves as soldiers with a hammer in their hand and everything. So th- that's all very strange, and you do not read anything like that in other literature from the first century. Um, And we we have to defamiliarize ourselves, I think, sometimes with the language that Paul uses because we know it from liturgical and church contexts and theological contexts. But in this original context, not just some small metaphors, but many, many places, like let's take every single time he speaks about crucifixion, um, comes with a potential counter-imperial um uh, subtext or at least with an uh, symptomatic um reminds us of the fact that we are dealing with an author who is the follower of a person who was executed by the Romans and who obviously does not agree with their judgment about this person and who makes this person and his fate central to his theology so but but I'll grant there's more research that is necessary and um Still, I do think it is the passages that I do discuss are symptomatic of a larger neglect of this whole issue, and that there's much more to be discovered. Especially if you look at the reasons for why Second Corinthians two fourteen has not been more central to the debate, um, you will see that these are dynamics that have been in place for a long time, um, and that we can reasonably expect that if we move on from there, um, from If we, so to speak, heal these blind spots, as I call them, um, that we might actually find many more examples of this kind of um, expressions of unease with Roman ideology in Paul's letters.
1: Excellent. Um, So uh, we've gone almost ninety minutes here, and uh, we haven't, you know, uh, touched on everything in your book. You talk about these blind spots um, um, in scholarship. You talk about uh, the difficulty of Biblical commentaries, and that they just are kind of uh, repeating what has been said before and uh, not really going into new territory so you talk about all this uh, in, your, in your final chapter and I, I've seen blind spots myself in my own work on the Shepherd of Hermes uh, where it's uh, generally interpreted as a book of uh, repentance and in some cases establishing a doctrine of repentance where I, I think that's there but it's not like the, the main interest of the author and uh, uh, something similar could be said about Paul uh, like you say when he uh, brings up a crucifixion um, and in, in these other instances in these verses that we've talked about here um, so uh, just to close us, I suppose, um, uh, what do you hope your audiences uh, take away, both general audiences, scholarly audiences? What, are they, what do you hope that they come away with? And do you have different messages for uh, perhaps both types of listeners?
0: Yeah, so so perhaps the, the most general message is to, to take Paul seriously. Um, to take Paul seriously also is a active observer of his times, of the political realities of his times and therefore also to take him seriously as a dialogue partner when we think about how we engage the politics of our own day. Not like, there's no easy solution to applying biblical texts to the present time, but it shows that we we share in similar dynamics um, and that therefore we we can and probably must use Paul as a dialogue partner, especially if we come from a Christian tradition. and then perhaps the more general point to, to the field perhaps um, is really about these blind spots that, that people can, I think, read about in the book, we don't have to talk about this uh, here in detail, but like you already mentioned this issue of the, uh, the way commentaries are written these days and one of the blind spots perhaps is most important to me now has become even more important to me after the publication of the book, um, and that's the development in digital humanities. And to, perhaps we, we, we can close with that because that's really important to me. Um, so I mentioned in the book how easy it was for me to perform this analysis of 2 Corinthians 2.14. that It only took me a couple of seconds basically to run a search on all the ancient occurrences of this verb in antiquity and ancient texts. And I, I, I tell some stories about how in s- s- earlier times, which means like 10, 20 or 30 years ago, had to, I mean, just to, to, just to confirm a single, a single passage, a single occurrence, had to like, write letters to other countries and things like that. And even with the rise of computers, like in the late 1990s and early 2000s, um, it, 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 took, it took hours to run these searches and you could only do them at, at certain places in the world. So, and I use this to, to point out that many things that are possible now in research have become possible only recent, most recent, uh, in most recent times. And then, of course, the, the book was published, I think, in October or November, 2023, uh, two. And then the next month we get GPT. And for me, as someone who has been interested in text linguistics, so in the question how texts are uh, composed and in probability theory, I, of course, was immediately struck by this new instrument that basically produces text as the most probable sequence of events, and uh, so for me this is—it's funny because I write about it in the book. I write about digital humanities and about the problem of commentary writing and about how many things have to change, and I think many of the things actually remained true, um, but they will just happen on a much um, smaller time scale. And I think in biblical studies in particular, we we, we haven't really realized the kind of changes that will come with these large language models, the kind of positive changes that will be um, possible um, for biblical exegesis, but also the kinds of tasks that we have done for decades and the kinds of books that we've written for decades that just no longer make sense to be written, to be honest. Um, and the, the whole way this will transform our education and the way that we will discuss this issue with students. So for example, I imagine in, in the future, in in a year or so from now, if we do things right, we will have large language models um, that are trained specifically on ancient texts, so that you could, for example, bring, let um, have a conversation between Paul and Seneca on the triumphal procession um, of Claudius in a way that will be informed by all the ancient texts that, uh, and so many more texts that we could ever read ourselves individually and I think that this, th- these are just hints at how things will develop, and it's, it's, it has basically co- consumed all my time since November, since JetGPT became available to the public, because I think it's, it, it will be so disruptive for our field, and most people have not yet realized that. So, But that's a topic for another podcast, but something that I think follows somehow. Um, from one of the blind spots or several of the blind spots that I identify at the end of the book and, and we will see how these developments in the end have to confirm or disconfirm this hypothesis that we can indeed find um, traces of unease on Paul's side with Roman ideology in his letters.
1: Sure thing. Well, when you write that book, we'll have you back on the podcast uh, to talk about it. Uh, and it's also a good reminder that uh, there are pos- potential positive uses of chat GBT beyond the threat for uh, teachers, <laughs> for students to be writing their, their uh, uh, essays <laughs> with the uh, chat GBT. Uh, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's close uh, by um, uh, just thanking you for your scholarship on Paul and your time to talk to us today. Uh, you mentioned that this has consumed uh, a lot of your time since uh, November. Uh, is where your uh, scholarship is going next is this the next thing that will be published for you or where where is your work going now
0: well i'm currently in the process of preparing another book for Erdmans, which will be on narratives in paul because my doctoral dissertation is 1,000 pages long and in german you can download it from the internet it's 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 open access as by the way is hidden criticism you can also download hidden criticism for free from the internet my, my first book on paul and empire but uh so I, I i want to write a book in english that basically has all the highlights of my years of research on narrative dynamics in paul so that's the next thing and then perhaps a text uh, text linguistic book on the new testament a book on exegesis and probability theory um i have an almost finished narratological commentary on galatians but these are all things for the next couple of years. I now have to finish this book on stories in Paul's letters. I think Rydman's is waiting uh, for the submission. And then after all these other things, I do have plans, but to be honest, I, I have to wait. Not, not so much, I don't want to write about ChatGPT and large language models. I talk about it and I'm happy to, to come on other podcasts or other to talk about it in, 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 other, in other contexts, but, but it's not, I'm, I'm not um, actively training large language models. So, I it's but it does play a role in my thinking in that I am reconsidering what kind of projects really make sense, what kind of projects really require my human input, and what kind of projects I think will be, um, yeah, will LLMs like JGPD or more advanced forms be able to produce themselves in the near future without my help? So, so I'm concentrating on this one book on all and his stories right now. And then we will see from there at the end of the year. um, What what else I still can contribute of value to
1: to the field. Wonderful, Christoph. Uh, Thanks for joining us once again, for being our guest on the New Books Network. Um, And again, uh, Christoph's book, uh, the one that we are mainly talking about today, is The Apostle and the Empire, Paul's Implicit and Explicit Criticism of Rome. It's available now from Erdmann's, uh, wherever quality books are sold. I've been Rob Heaton, and I'm your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for the New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'll be with you again on your next download. Have a great day. Bye-bye.